Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy to have all of you with us uh, for our show today. You know, um, I we've been talking about guns a lot, obviously, especially since Uvalde last week. Um, and I didn't think necessarily we'd be continuing to make it a primary topic of conversation on the show today. But we've seen again in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a gunman who uh, uh, went to a medical center in Tulsa and uh, shot and killed four people, killed himself. We don't have a lot of details yet. Law enforcement is continuing to uh, hold on to much of the information, so we don't know much about the victims. We really don't know anything about the shooter at this point. Obviously, details will start coming in as the day goes on today, but uh, it means that once again today, we've got to take a look at gun violence in the United States, among the many other topics that we will take on in today's uh, political rewind. Uh, Let's go ahead and get right to the panel and begin our conversation. It's Thursday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is the boss himself, Kevin Riley. How are you, Kevin? Good, uh, and it's good to be with you this morning, uh, Bill. I'm actually in Jekyll Island at a meeting of the Georgia Press Association, which represents all of the newspapers in the state. So I'm looking forward to some time here. These are the folks who are very serious about making sure the citizens in every corner of this state are informed, and they've really been uh, welcoming to me because this is my first time here. Uh, Kevin, very quickly, um, this is a difficult time for uh, the printed press. Uh, uh, subscriptions are down. People aren't reading. They're going online to get a lot of their uh, news these days. Social media is bringing them there. So what's a primary issue that you're dealing with down there? I think that you nailed it, Bill. It's the idea that every... Uh, Uh, corner of the state, every town, every county needs a strong journalism operation to do its watchdog work, to make sure government's performing the way that it should. So what the conversation's about is just how committed uh, we all are to that and finding the ways to make sure we can have business that supports doing it. Um, that's, I'm really glad you pointed that out. Local news is drying up. Organizations that report local news are drying up, not just all over Georgia, but across the country. And that is unfortunate. Um, all right, let's move on and get everybody else introduced. Um, Tammy Greer is back with us, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Tammy, how's your summer starting off? <clears throat> so far, so good. Nice and easy, with the exception of the news, of course. But... Yeah. Um, well, thank you for being here today. Um, and we're joined by um, two longtime friends uh, who uh, know each other uh, personally, work together in the state legislature. Uh, state Representative Mary Margaret Oliver continues her work as a member of the, the state house. Mary Margaret, I realized you, you pointed out to me some time back that I always identify you as representing Decatur. And you said, I, I represent a much bigger swath of northeastern, uh, the northeastern metro area than that. And in fact, you go down to, uh, you're in Druid Hills, you're up La Vista Road, all the way almost to Shambly. So your district is much bigger than I've uh, uh, pointed out before. So I wanted to say that today on the show. Thank you. Good morning. Today, I represent Chambly, Brookhaven, Atlanta, and parts of Decatur, and my new district uh, goes a little bit more east, but it is a good chunk of middle DeKalb, including all of the $8 billion constituent of every university and medical center. Yeah, and a pretty strong Democratic uh, district, too, I think it's safe to say, yes? Uh, I think uh, Hillary Clinton won city Decatur 86%. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and we are joined also by Edward Lindsay, a former member of the state House, a leader during his tenure in the House of Representatives, where he represented 
uh, Buckhead. And as we pointed out on the show before, when I say that Edward, you and Mary Margaret are friends in personal life as well, uh, for so- quite some time, you were teaching Sunday school uh, together at your church. That's <clears throat> correct. Uh, finding Jesus on the front page. And sometimes it was hard to find Jesus. Thanks for being here today, Edward. We appreciate it. Um, All right, Kevin, uh, we do have to start, I think, by talking about uh, this latest uh, shooting in Tulsa. Um, Not so much getting into the details of what happened, but I guess as a starting point, uh, we need to say that, um, as I mentioned in the headlines to this show, the um, there's a research organization that keeps track of mass shootings and mass shootings in this country are defined as any incident in which four or more people are killed uh, in, in, in one uh, event. And um, that organization says we've now had more than 200 of those incidents in just this year alone. It's staggering, Kevin. Yeah, that is an incredible number. And uh, to be more precise on the definition, that four people does not include the perpetrator. You know, and and we know so often that uh, in the when we hear those body count numbers, there's this question about whether the person who committed the atrocity uh, is alive or dead. Uh, But, yeah, disturbing trend. You can't you can't get away from it. I mean, uh, just when we're we're not even done uh, mourning, understanding, uh, figuring out what happened in Texas. And now we've got another one, you know, in Tulsa. So uh, it is a very troubling, disturbing trend. I want to go around and just ask each of you for your general thoughts on what we're seeing uh, right now. We'll talk more specifically about uh, uh, legislation that's being proposed, whether it's going to get very far or not. But but um, just as a starting point, when you read the news or see the news again last night, uh, Edward Lindsay, about a Tulsa incident like this, um, what, what are you thinking in general about what's happening in this country? Well... For me, I go back to uh, what's known in the Episcopal Church underneath our Book of Common Prayer as Holy Innocence Day, which uh, is on December 28th, and unfortunately there's going to be a lot of folks to remember that day, in which the uh, the prayer is, we remember this day, O God, the slaughter of the Holy Innocents, and, uh, and the, the death toll keeps climbing. Uh, unfortunately, what happens oftentimes is when we have one mass shooting, somebody else who's disturbed uh, gets the idea and goes out and, and does something else horrible, and then another. And we've seen this over the last few weeks between Buffalo, Texas, and now Tulsa. And our prayers that we won't see it again, uh, but we but we may very well. And so the question is, where do we go from here in terms of figuring out solutions that are both workable and doable? And in terms of getting something passed that actually makes a difference. And I look forward to the discussion on the details. When I was in my first year of law practice, 24 years old, one of my clients was murdered by her former husband. Privileged to not grow up in a house with violence. And the introduction to violence uh, as a day-to-day fact for many families has been real. 20 years after that, Initial year, I was the primary sponsor of the legislation on stalking, um, which opened up a discussion for the, really, I think, for the first time. Every single woman TV reporter came to me to tell me about her stalking story of somebody from out in that audience that uh, who was stalking her in a dangerous way. The le- we live in a, a country of violence, and. Uh, Daily, we're reminded of that, but the slaughter of children uh, really uh, hits us all differently, I'm sure. About five, six years ago, uh, four miles from my house in Druid Hills, a young man, Farmer Foster Care Child, went into the McNair Academy and sprayed the elementary school with uh, uh, an assault weapon, which he had quote-unquote borrowed from a friend. He was 21, and he uh, didn't hurt anybody that day <clears throat> because of the intervention of a receptionist that talked to him for about 45 minutes and brought him down and talked him into surrendering. I'm very much in my mind comparing that 
tragedy that was averted uh, in, in their academy through the tragedy last week of Uvalde, it's very, very disturbing to me. And our political she, she be, discuss finish, has pathetic. I apologize for interrupting. I just wanted to point out, and I wish I remembered uh, the woman's name right now. I don't. But she became quite a hero, national hero, because she was able to. What was it? I think her name was Antoinette Tuff, something like that. Yeah, she she became she became well known because mm-hmm. she was able to stop that gunman in his tracks. Tammy, just give us your general thoughts as we start today. Generally speaking, um, it's challenging to find the appropriate words to describe um, not only these Tulsa and Uvalde, um, I think the other 231 shootings this year. Um, And when I saw the news, I think it's like there were more mass shootings than there are days so far this year, which is very tragic. Um, And I am very curious to understand what would be the space, what would be the moment um, to where, um, you know, those of us that are living and breathing will have the same um, thoughts of protecting life um, as, as, as others do. And I am curious as to where is they're going to be some type of understanding between um, one's ability to have a firearm versus the ability for fourth graders to be able to finish out a school year. And when, when can we be honest and have an honest conversation about that so that we can move forward as a country? Uh, Kevin, um, we know that, uh, that Daniel Defense a company located down in Black Creek, Georgia, family-run business, started back, I think, right around 2000 by Marty Daniel. He's built it up to be one of the most successful gun manufacturing businesses <laughs> in the country. We, we know now that the shooter in Uvalde used one of his AR-15s, a weapon that was manufactured by Daniel. We also know that uh, the uh, shooter in Las Vegas, where more than 50 people were murdered, used a couple of weapons produced by Daniel Defense. And, and so they're under a lot of scrutiny right now, uh, primarily because of the promotional tactics they have used and their kind of aggressive marketing of guns, in many cases to younger people, um, and, uh, and with a big emphasis on the firepower of many of their weapons, Kevin. Yeah, you know, Bill, I mentioned that I, I drove, came down here to Jekyll Island. I drove right by their headquarters, which is a massive and impressive building um, right on I-16. And, uh, you know, they are in the news, and they are known for their aggressive, um, some would call it unique and uh, marketing direct to consumers. You know, guns used to be marketed, you know, not by the manufacturers, but through through other methods. And um, they are in the spotlight for how they've marketed uh, guns. And it, it just seems so, so odd in, in light of what happened in Texas that they literally have ads featuring children mm-hmm. uh, with weapons. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just a very unusual thing. Um, and I mean, I don't know where it's going to go, but it just seems like uh, at some point um, you've got to ask yourself what is appropriate marketing. Yeah, they, they, we've talked about it on the show, um, and it's gotten a lot of attention. Just before uh, Uvalde, they uh, put up a Twitter ad which showed a toddler, child looked to be about three years old, holding uh, a semi-automatic weapon, and essentially you're quoting a verse from the Bible which talked about how raising your children right would make them you know, stronger as adults. But, but here's the thing, Edward. Um, you know, Daniel's tactics may be questionable uh, to, to a lot of people out there, but I wonder how we talk about a company. It, it is not illegal to manufacture weapons in this country. Daniel has had a very successful run. They're one of the largest employers in Bryan County. In 2018, when they opened a new plant, the plant that Kevin Riley went past on his way to Jekyll, 
Um, uh, former Governor Nathan Deal was there. Other state officials and county officials were there to congratulate them. Um, and so I, I don't know how you fit all that into the question about what's happening in some cases with the weapons they and others are manufacturing. Um, you know, it gets back to a serious question uh, to when it comes to the marketing, particularly if the marketing is focused on young people, how appropriate that is, um, given uh, what we know about in terms of the development of the human mind uh, and how, uh, you know, still at, at, at the young age, particularly in the teenage years, uh, the, the mind hasn't fully formed. And there's a lot of... Uh, of issues that take place there, which brings the larger question uh, that a lot of folks have in terms of whether or not it's truly appropriate for us to be permitting someone who's 18 years old to purchase a, a, a weapon uh, of this kind of, of capacity. Um, like I said, I'm trying to move beyond simply focusing on one one manufacturer because it's not just the AR-15 that's that that's causing a lot of problems. It's 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 the, it's handguns with with high capacity uh, magazines contained in them, so it's it's hard to simply just say, well, this gun or that gun is is the problem. But what the problem is, you know, uh, whether or not how much firepower that particular gun has, what kind of magazines they have, who should be in possession of it, and what kind of checks or balances should be taking place before someone is permitted to have a gun like that. I kind of want to focus on that rather than on one manufacturer factual one kind of gun uh, and simply sort of move beyond that because there are some serious questions. I think the idea, for instance, of an 18-year-old having being able to buy a semi-automatic gun like an AR-15 is is ridiculous. Uh, The the age should be clearly raised to 21 years old. I think before you purchase uh, a gun of that kind of capacity, you know, clearly the, uh, the background checks uh, need to be enlarged. That wouldn't have made a difference, unfortunately, from the background checks in Texas, but it would have made a difference in Charleston, South Carolina, in which the background checks failed uh, in terms of the ability to do so. So that needs to be enhanced. Uh, and so what I guess I'm trying to get at, you know, there's no one silver bullet. We need to look at several different ways and try to attack the issue uh, in terms of raising the age, in terms of questioning whether or not Magazines with high with a high number of, of firepower should be permitted. In terms of, of expanding background checks, in terms of what kind of um, of safety and, and and teaching should take place before someone is able to purchase a gun uh, like this. I mean, there, there's a thousand and one little things that need to be done, and then we need to be trying to look at those uh, in terms of trying to get something done. So, Tammy and then Mary Margaret, let me add an element uh, to this discussion, because it, Edward is certainly correct. You can't focus just on Daniel Defense, although you could certainly question their marketing strategies. Um, in 1994, Tammy, uh, Congress passed and the president signed a federal law which um, included a prohibition on the manufacture for certain civilian use of semi, for civilian uses of certain semi-automatic firearms that were defined as assault weapons. It, was a, it had a 10-year lifespan. It expired in, uh, in 2004 or 2005. Here's one of the fascinating things about that. When that law was put into effect, um, I think the, the statistics I've read suggest there were maybe just under a million semiotic weapons in circulation in the United States outside of the military. Now, today, we think there are as many, there are tens of millions of semi-automatic weapons in circulation. Yeah, there are more guns in circulation than there are people uh, born in the United States um, as a whole. Um, Not only that, Bill, um, let's also not forget the 2005 uh, bill that was um, put into law that protects gun manufacturers from liability. Let's uh, not also forget that um, the parents of the children killed in Sandy Hook won a settlement against Remington um, because of the marketing, because of the marketing of the their um, firearms um, toward 
young people. And so even though under the 2005 Act um, that you, you know, that Remington thought that they had some type of shield against um, being liable for um, for their firearms being used, it was the marketing. It was the strategic marketing to people, to young folks, um, just as, you know, this current company has done um, toward young people to say that this is okay. So I, while I agree with Edward that it is a multi-pronged approach that we need to take to this issue, letting off gun manufacturers in the sense of marketing toward young people, these types of weapons, these weapons of war, these weapons that were used primarily by the military um, to, to have that you need here in the United States as if that is the appropriate weapon to go hunting with. I think it's absurd. Um, and I, I, I wonder when we will you know, do a both-and approach to it. Yes, there are societal measures that we need to, to discuss as well as, um, but for someone manufacturing and marketing such types of weapons <clears throat> to people who end up dying, then would this w exist? It's a both-and. Mary Margaret? One of the benefits of a long political career is that I can experience trends, not only see them, but experience trends. Uh, many issues have become uh, more thoughtfully presented and, and discussed and enacted, but the issues around gun safety have gone from, in the 90s when I was chair of the Judiciary Committee, a bipartisan discussion. Uh, my colleague, uh, Senator Mike Egan, chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate and I were aligned on gun safety uh, bills. We had open discussions. We had serious discussions. <clears throat> we didn't pass much, uh, but it was a serious, bipartisan, intellectually honest effort. Today, um, the discussion doesn't exist in any intellectually honest way, in my opinion. Um, my efforts to ban assault weapons in 2000. 16, 2017, were not responded with any serious discussion. There was a lot of mocking, and there was a lot of uh, bad, uh, bad messaging towards me, but it wasn't a serious discussion. And the total 100% partisan votes on gun safety legislation is the, the worst trend that I have experienced in a long political career. Sandy Hook, the slaughter of six-year-olds, did not change that. And I'm very, very interested in watching very carefully the discussions around me right now. Banning the sale of assault-type weapons to 18 to 20-year-olds is a no-brainer. Uh, the public, and when I was introducing legislation, supported ban of us all assault weapons, <clears throat> not as strong a percentage as the public supported background checks and other safety measures. But I would be very interested in what the polling is this week on banning assault weapons to 18 and 21-year-olds. And one final thought, this trend is the profitability of the gun manufacturing industry, as evidenced by Daniel Defense, is a significant driver of public policy in the most unfortunate way possible. Um, thank you for uh, starting us off with that, that very meaningful conversation, all of you. Let's get to a break. I'd like to continue talking about guns, particularly as we move to talking about legislation that might be offered uh, here in Georgia and, of course, in Congress, where debate is already well underway in both the House and the Senate. We'll do that and talk about other issues in the news after we pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Tammy Greer, Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, Kevin Riley joined me for uh, today's Political Rewind. Kevin, I just uh, a few minutes ago read today's jolt at AJC.com, and uh, it, the lead item is a story which uh, tells us that uh, legislative leaders, Republican leaders in Georgia, including the governor and the Speaker of the House and uh, members of the Senate, uh, have, quote, no appetite for any consideration of new limits to firearms as a way to prevent possible mass shootings in the state. One outlier, the story goes on, is the outgoing lieutenant governor, who in fact did call for uh, Republicans to take action on gun violence. He said, like an overwhelming majority of Americans, I'm ready to have a conservative and comprehensive conversation about changing the trajectory of gun violence and mass shootings. Republicans here in Georgia, like elsewhere, are focusing more on dealing with the mental health issues that they say lead people to commit mass murders, um, is hardening the schools, uh, uh, having better uh, safety uh, uh, provisions in schools and the like. Virtually no talk about changing gun laws, uh, Kevin. Yeah, you know, look, I don't want to sound cynical, but um, this is not a hard pattern to follow. Uh, Mary Margaret made the point about the discussion not being real. Okay, and it's really not serious, has not been serious for some time at either state or national level. And so foot dragging. Let's just keep expressing concern. Let's kind of run in place for a while, but let's let time work in our favor it will fade from the public consciousness. We don't have much time during legislative session. We don't have time. And nothing has ever happened. I don't know if it will ever change until every single person in this country has a personal experience with a horrible mass shooting. And we're getting really close. I, I, I sometimes will, when I get the chance, talk to people. And I find out that almost everyone I talk to can point to a experience that they're somehow emotionally connected to because it happened in some place they used to live or a relative was nearby. And we're getting to the point where it's going to be a routine experience of an American citizen to have lost someone in a mass shooting. Mary Margaret, I'm very happy that you uh, are on this show today because you've championed mental health reform for many years. And and most recently in this previous session of the General Assembly, we're uh, one of the co-sponsors of the major uh, overhaul, which should in fact uh, provide mental health services much more broadly to people across the state. Okay, that said, when you talk, we talk about particularly Republicans saying what we really have to do is address mental health issues that lead people to commit these crimes. The Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal, conservative newspaper, has a story today which says that most violent acts are carried out by people with no diagnosed mental illnesses, say psychologists and epidemiologists. Mental illness can contribute to violence, research shows, but predicting who might act violently is all but impossible. In fact, something like 5% or less of violent acts are linked to mental illness, and the American Psychiatric Association worries that you stigmatize people with mental illnesses uh, when you start talking about violence in, that, in, in terms of their, their problems and may dissuade them from getting treatment. Uh, I'll quote Mark Rosenberg from your good program last Friday that said 4% of gun violence comes from mentally ill people. Uh, I've had in my law practice a long experience with dealing with mentally ill people in relation to conservatorship and court work, and um, none of them in 20, 30 years have been violent. Uh, And none of the court procedures, uh, almost none of the court procedures that I've been particularly involved in have dealt with issues of violence. They've dealt with issues of a lot of other bad behavior issues, but relatively very few with violence. Mental health uh, crisis in this country, particularly relating to children, is a very serious discussion that David Ralston has been leading, and I'm working on that this week, today, and next week the Mental Health Commission will be meeting again. Um, And we will continue, in a bipartisan way, a serious discussion about the needs of families in crisis with mental health. 
It is a distraction, however, in my view, to talk about mental health services as one central plank of curbing gun violence. And I'm very clear in my mind about the separation of those issues. Um, the reality of red flag laws, the way in which we can ask a judge <clears throat> to make a decision to take away a gun from somebody who is clearly potentially about to injure himself or somebody else is a real discussion that has to happen, has to happen in a, with all of the other real discussions. I, I, just very briefly, I had a participated in a hearing that was led by Kim Anderson over in the West Georgia, and we had rural law enforcement officers come and talk to us about individuals in their community that they knew should not have guns and what their power to do something and the power not to do it. A law enforcement officer, knowing somebody is dangerous, was limited in Georgia's take action. Edward? That, that I think uh, can be addressed on the state level, which is the red flag laws. And, and it gets back to what I talked about at the very beginning is figuring out what is workable and what is doable and what uh, can be done at the, at the state level uh, in terms of uh, what takes place within their state and what needs to be done on the national level. Uh, what can be done on the state level. Uh, well, let, let me back up and sort of explain what I mean by that. There are in various states uh, more restrictive laws uh, when it comes to to the purchase of guns and the, the ownership of guns. And for the most part, quite frankly, they're meaningless because of because of, of the border. I mean, there's no restrictions in terms of guns uh, coming from one state to another. And so those kind of restrictions are, are rather difficult to in, to enforce, or rather difficult in terms of their their uh, ability to actually curb violence. But there are some things that can be done on the state level. There's some things that 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 must be done on the federal level. What can be done on the state level is what we talked about earlier, uh, which is raising the age for someone to be able to purchase a gun from 18 to 21 years old, an assault rifle, and they are like an AR-15. Uh, that can be done on a state level. Rag, red flag laws can be done on, on a state level. But then there are, and there's some others as well. And but then there are other laws that that really require action on the federal level to have any kind of meaningful impact in our overall society. Uh, the limitation of high capacity magazines, for instance, uh, which I think, often, which a lot of folks think had a bigger impact in terms of. The 1994 law than the ban on some assault weapons, which a lot of a lot of experts say the, the ban itself on on certain kinds of assault weapons had so many Swiss cheese holes in it, it, it really wasn't effective. But the limitation on high capacity magazines, and, and according to many studies, had a much higher impact. So you can you can look at that, and you can also look at some of the other things that could be done only on the federal level if we really are to sort of start having some kind of meaningful impact on the issue in terms of gun safety. There are, let me also add one other thing in terms of on the state level that I think is very important, which I wish that we would do, which is tying the purchase of some of these guns to safety courses in which someone is required to go through and show, demonstrate an ability to use a gun and ability to, to, uh, know when not to use the gun, um, and 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 to demonstrate some proficiency at it. Some critics say, "Well, hell, that's just teaching somebody who wants to hurt people how to use a gun more effectively." Well, quite frankly, for those people who are heck bent, because this is a family show rather than the other word, uh, <laughs> you know, the um, Requiring someone to go through those extra steps in terms of the, the safety programs will probably deter that person from purchasing that gun altogether because yeah, uh, that's not yeah. the sort of person that's going to be willing to do so. So those sort of restrictions won't impede someone who wants to, to purchase the gun for a legitimate purpose, but will deter someone. Uh, expanding and enforcing uh, the background checks can be done both the state, but should be done at the federal level. The fact of the matter is that 40% of all sales of guns, transfer of guns, are done privately and not through a, a commercial licensed uh, gun gun um, 
seller. Uh, that loophole needs to be needs to be filled. And keep in mind, and I know I'm running, I'm sort of running out of time here, but this this statistic is also important. Eighty percent of violent acts through a gun uh, with a gun are done with a gun that was procured privately rather than uh, uh, through a commercial uh, uh, um, uh, seller uh, with a proper background check. So, so um, it's interesting, Tammy. Um, Edward Lindsay has, in his career, political career, his, his public service career, been a Republican, and he has uh, a lot of thoughts about the kinds of restrictions, the kinds of safety measures we ought to put in place, and everything he says is unlikely to get anywhere, as Mary Margaret and Kevin Riley had pointed out, unfortunately. But, but here is one of the issues that I think is worth taking up. We know that this week, um, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, really reacted to Uvalde in the strongest way possible. He's basically saying it will no longer be possible. He's introduced measures that they expect to pass. I don't know, it may have already passed, but I don't think so. It'll be no longer possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. Uh, the government is also mandating that long gun magazines be altered to carry no more than five rounds. Very dramatic action. But here's the issue, I think, that's worth talking about. Mary Margaret already pointed out Mark Rosenberg's appearance on the show on Friday, one of the great public health leaders in this country for a very long time. Mark points out that we've had a false debate around guns in this country, that it isn't black or white, that, that gun safety does not let, lead to banning guns outright. There are still people can still buy guns with certain restrictions, but the pro-gun lobbies have said it's all or nothing. You're either, we either have Second Amendment rights or we don't. And there's a way in which the Trudeau measure sort of, I think, reinforces what, what the pro-gun advocates worry about in this country. So I, I, I think that's a great point, and um, I take all of Edward's points um, um, about, you know, um, suggestions and solutions and recommendations to move forward. So one of the items that I've been curious about is to know that the United States is, if and please correct me if I am mistaken, the only um, uh, republic in this world where the Second Amendment is part of one's founding documents and governing documents um, for the country, right? So every other country does not have this so-called absolute right um, in their founding or their governing documents for their country. That's number one. Number two, um, I to Edward's point and to your point, Bill, um, and forgive the language, the pro-gun advocates have almost bastardized the Second Amendment right. in a way that it has become, I need to have every piece of arsenal available to me because that's what the Second Amendment has. And that is not it. Um, when there was, um, the, there is no um, part of the Constitution where there are absolute rights. None. There no. are exceptions to every single um, part, every single amendment that we have in the Constitution, up to and including the 13th Amendment. So let's be clear on what it looks like for some of these uh, weapons and the ability to have the weapons. And I, I hear people like Edward who are providing, you know, solutions, yet that you have the alternative that are louder voices. You have you know, your Ted Cruz and such, who are extremely loud in providing um, this groundswell of people who think that the government, whether federal or state, are going to come in and to take away your firearms, um, and then you have to create this militia in order to protect your rights. And I think that's where probably the argument falls flat is uh, in how we are sometimes unable to move forward. Uh, Kevin and then Edward. So um, I cling I cling to optimism about this, no matter how bad it gets. And in spite of what I've said so far, and I'll tell you a quick story. Bill, you've heard this. I was in Ireland 
at the Irish Times on the morning of the Colorado theater shooting, the morning after. And it was the biggest story in the country, which surprised me. I was visiting a, a friend there, and um, I, I asked why. Why would people in Ireland care about this so much? And the explanation I got was that, you know, Ireland was a country torn apart by violence, and guns were so prevalent, and there was much money to be made uh, selling guns in, in Ireland at the time. And when finally the troubles were, uh, in part thanks to President Clinton, uh, they were able to reach an agreement to to bring peace to the country to, in a situation that looked impossible to solve, impossible to solve and was impossible to solve for decades. Um, the Irish then began to do all they could to get guns out of the country because they knew the presence of guns were a big part of the problem. And so if they could do that, I think we can do something. Uh, Edward, last well, word to, before to, our break. To, well, I, I simply wanted to, to, to add in to what Tammy's talking about. Um, you know, uh, Justice Scalia in, in the Heller decision didn't recognize a complete and total right to own any kind of, of, of weapon uh, without any kind of restrictions. He expressly recognized that there were reasonable uh, restrictions that could be put in place, particularly militarized weapons uh, and other restrictions that were uh, that could be put in place for various public safety purposes. Uh, now he didn't say this, but someone else uh, said this: that the Second Amendment is not a suicide note. Uh, you know, uh, we do need to recognize someone's right to bear arms, and uh, and and Justice Scalia recognized that. But even Justice Scalia recognized that that right comes with certain restrictions, as Tammy pointed out. Mary Margaret, a quick comment. There are four uh, appellate circuits that have upheld bans on assault weapons on the local level, <clears throat> and um, the current United States Supreme Court does not give me hope that we're going to continue to recognize the limitations of the Second Amendment. I'm becoming a little less optimistic every day. On the um, and we're going to see uh, in, in, in less than a month now how the court rules on the uh, uh, New York gun law, which allows right. carrying a, a weapon outside of the house uh, w without a permit. And we think there's every reason to believe, based on the arguments and how the justices responded, that they're going to open the door for even broader uh, use of gu carrying of, of guns uh, that will have an impact on this conversation. All right, got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back in just a minute with more. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Well, once again on Political Rewind, I have all these plans for multiple topics that we should talk about. And once again, we've got a panel that has such interesting things to say about this extraordinarily important subject of guns in our society that we'll just talk about those things uh, with the time we have remaining. And Kevin, here's what I'd like to pick up on. A um, couple references were already made by, by the panel to uh, the Heller decision, 2008. What's interesting about Heller is it was really, we don't think about this, but it was not until 2008 that the Supreme Court uh, said the Constitution does in fact allow for individuals to, to have, to possess guns, whether they're part of a militia, whether they need them because of a job in public safety or the like, and it really transformed the landscape in many ways in terms of gun ownership. But... Um, as as uh, Mary Margaret and Edward pointed out, Heller does not say there cannot be restrictions. There was a wonderful New York Times essay this week by a clerk for John Paul Stevens who opposed the majority opinion written by Antonin Scalia in Heller, in which they say exactly that. 
They say Heller does not totally disable government from passing laws that seek to prevent the kind of atrocities we saw in Uvalde, Texas. But they go on, Kevin, to say it's politicians who have chosen to distort Heller uh, to uh, uh, be able to uh, uh, fend off any challenges to uh, free use of weapons. Right. I mean, the ability to keep saying and repeating a distorted message over and over and over enough that it becomes accepted as if it is somehow true just because it gets said so many times. I mean, the idea that the government could not pass laws to regulate deadly weapons is just ludicrous on its face. All right. So now let me turn very quickly, if I may, with the time we have to how this affects our political landscape right now. Mary Margaret um, Stacey Abrams, who has already taken out. We know that that um, that health care for people across state is a big part of her campaign. Abortion rights became big when the when the uh, opinion uh, was released uh, about a month or so ago. And now uh, her campaign is saying that we have to do something about guns. The question is, um, from a political point of view, is that an issue that will drive mm-hmm. voters to the polls? Stacey Abrams is a smarter politician than anybody on this panel, and I would not in any way suggest that <clears throat> she's not going to find the right way to discuss what people's fears are and what people's frustration is horror that we're all feeling, in my opinion, we're all feeling the horror of slaughter of children. I'm really kind of surprised at myself, even though I'm, you know, consider myself politically tuned in, to be totally obsessed with these uh, news stories about Uvalda and the response and what was happening to those children in those rooms. I just cannot believe that this horror is not impacting how people feel. And I think Stacey Abrams will find a way to talk about these issues to respond to people's feeling that we have to move forward away from an intellectually dishonest refusal to recognize that the violence of our society impacts us all in a significant way. But, Edward, is it going to motivate people? Is it an issue that will drive voters to the polls? Is Governor Kemp's uh, longtime support and finally passage of a law that opens carry without a permit in the state going to hurt him in the general election? Uh, The reality is probably not. Um, You know, there are uh, certain folks on both ends of the political spectrum uh, that were going to vote the way they were going to vote, regardless of, of the others. I, I don't really see uh, it making that big of a difference, quite frankly. Uh, I think that the, the issues primarily uh, are going to be those of economics uh, and, and people's feelings of uncertainty regarding that area. But getting back to Stacy's position on guns, and you know, the question is, what is, it, what is she going to specifically propose? And 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 quite frankly, what is uh, Brian Kemp going to propose in, in, in light of what, what is taking place? Um, you know, what I've set forth is is relatively widely uh, supported across political lines. Uh, but a, a greater restrictions that Stacey has called for in the past is largely unpopular in this state. And so if she goes down that avenue, it could very well hurt her on some people for that on the same front. Uh, a complete uh, no uh, in terms of addressing uh, the violence that's taking place uh, in Texas, in Oklahoma, in New York will probably hurt Republicans. Both sides are going to need to be able to put something more specific out there and then uh, see what the voters are going to say. My my suggestion to both is is to uh, is to put forth something that it like I said earlier is both workable and doable. And, and, and see what the, the folks want. Uh, if you take an extreme position on either side, you're going to lose voters. Tammy, let me give you a last chance at this. Uh, I concur with Edward that the, some of the items that Edward is proposing go straight in the middle where you can get folks, uh, the vast majority of people who are in the middle, on, on board with that. 
um, the loudest voices get all the attention, and sometimes they are so small in the minority, um, yet their voices tend to amplify and take over the conversation. Um, I think sensible, uh, reasonable gun safety measures uh, to where one respects one's ability to have a firearm, who's responsible, who has safety measures um, and components associated with it, as well as to be able to keep the general public safe is, is where we should be. We are just about out of time uh, for today's show. Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, Tammy Greer, thank you all so much for uh, being with us today. Kevin Riley, I, I think you agree with me. It, it is just such a privilege to be able to listen to conversations like this on Political Rewind where we learn so much and get so much meaningful uh, information from our guests. Yes? Yes, it's a treat for me every every time I'm on. I learn something. I feel like I got smarter just being on this panel, and that's no easy trick to make me smarter, Bill, as you know. <laughs> All right. Well, Kevin, thank you, of course, for being here as well. We're just about out of time. Uh, tomorrow we're going to do a show with some mayors uh, from around the state. Skip Henderson, just reelected as the mayor of Columbus, Georgia, will be with us. Van Johnson, mayor of Savannah. Dina Holiday Ingram, mayor of East Point. All of them are going to be here. We'll talk a little bit about the local issues that uh, their, their constituents are concerned about right now. And, of course, ask them about their attitudes about what's happening in the larger political sphere right now as well. That's tomorrow on Political Rewind. And, of course, Jim Galloway will join me for that conversation. That's it. We are completely out of time for today's show. We want to welcome Chase McGee, who has stepped in uh, to uh, help us out. Now that Sam Burmas Dawes has moved on, Chase, we're delighted to have you with us. He directed today's show, and you did a great job, Chase. That's it. We're out of time for Political Rewind. We'll be back again tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Please, everybody, take care and stay healthy. Goodbye. <laughs>